we continue our series on sin and judgment. This series started uh, several months ago because of the concern that people have a mistaken notion of the Bible. That is that in the Old Testament, God is concerned and preoccupied and even irrational and rash about sin and judgment. But then in the New Testament, since God is compassionate, merciful, loving, and gracious, sin and judgment are not really prominent in the New Testament, and we don't really need to speak of it or be reminded of sin and judgment. In the New Testament, it's all grace, it's all love, and God does not have any, any high expectations of rejecting sin and pursuing righteousness. Well, we've been showing in our study that that is not the case. And we've been going book by book of the New Testament, and now we've reached the book of Philippians, Philippians and Philippians chapter 3. In particular, what is sin in this chapter, and what judgment should we have about it? What discernment should we have about it? And if we don't have it now correctly, we must be ready for the judgment of God. The judgment of God does wait if we misjudge now. All right? That's the, the emphasis of this series. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, 
Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Amen. The book of Philippians is usually known as a book of joy and rejoicing. This is how it is typically known. And it is true that joy and rejoicing is emphasized in this book. Perhaps about 10 times this concept is present in this short letter. But to say that it's just about joy, joy in affliction, is not accurate, if it's only that. Because in this chapter, chapter 3, the whole chapter is mainly devoted to warning us about false teachers. The whole chapter, which normally is not accompanied by joy in terms of the way people speak of joy and rejoicing. But chapter 3, it is entailing a strong warning against evil workers, dogs, false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, false pastors. That's what chapter 3 is all about. In the middle of a book on joy through affliction. He keeps before us this fact, this truth. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He's, his goal is for us to understand what he's saying both in this chapter, since he says finally, and also in chapter 4. 4 verse 8, he also says, finally, brethren. 4 verse 8. These are the things that he wants to emphasize before he concludes his letter. So what is it to the brethren? Rejoice in the Lord. We said that rejoicing is a common theme in this book. Most of us know this from chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing must be the way that we pursue our Christian life in the midst of affliction. The Apostle Paul is a prisoner. He's in a Roman jail. They have accused him falsely, and he does not know what the outcome will be. In the midst of affliction, he's rejoicing. He's not despondent. He's not discouraged. He's not anxious. In fact, he's telling others who are not in the prison not to be anxious. 4 verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 4, 6, and 7. So rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. What has the Lord done for us? What does the Lord have in store for us, both in this life, but especially in the life to come? 
We have to rejoice in the Lord's redemption for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. We must understand that he bought us. We belong to him. We are his children. So we should rejoice in the things of God, who we are in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. The apostle is a very patient teacher. He says that it's not a trouble or it's not troublesome for him to write the same things again. He's done so many times. Like we said, he's been emphasizing rejoicing. And in this chapter, he's going to emphasize the fact that we need to be on guard. These truths, the truths of the gospel in relationship to what we need to know to be reminded of and how that reminder will help us and safeguard us. This, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 12 to 15. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The Apostle Peter does the same. In fact, we might say the whole Bible is a constant reminder of the gospel The whole Bible is the gospel explained in 10,000 different ways to remind us from different aspects and elements of the gospel what it is God has done for us and is doing for us. 2 Peter 1.12 Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. We go to chapter three, 2 Peter 3, verses one and two. Another reminder, 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Reminders. Reminders are necessary because we forget. Reminders are necessary because we are distracted. Reminders are necessary because we can become callous towards the things of God. So we need these strong reminders to be able to press on in the right way. This is important because many times people think the preacher doesn't need to talk about sin so much. The preacher doesn't need to talk about false teachers so much. The preacher shouldn't talk about the judgment of God so much. Why can't we talk about peace and joy and love and grace and just focus on those virtues? Well, we cannot properly understand those virtues unless we understand them in contrast to sin and judgment. This is what he's saying right here. He says, it's no trouble to write the same things, but also, what is the immediate benefit for us to be reminded of sin, judgment, false teachers, the day of judgment. He says right here, it's a safeguard for you. A safeguard. It's your protection 
You must know it. If you don't know it, then you're going to be susceptible to falsehood, to sin, to heresy, to false teachers. This reminder is to be constant. He says it's a safeguard. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, he says the word beware three times. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. First, it's a safeguard. It's your protection. And then you also have to beware. If you're not aware, what will happen? You'll be caught off guard. Things will sneak up on you. You'll be caught by surprise. You'll be shocked. You'll be demoralized. You'll be confused. The Apostle Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 20, verses 28, 28 to 32. Acts chapter 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears." And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The apostle says we have to be on guard. Be on your guard. The elders for the flock. The elders for themselves and for the flock. We have a charge. The Holy Spirit made us overseers to shepherd the church of God. The church of God purchased With his own blood, it says. Savage wolves will come in. How will the savage wolves come in? Dressed in sheep's clothing. That's why we have to be on guard and they will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The apostle knew that this was the case in Ephesus and everywhere, even in the the city of Philippi. He knew that this was the case, that We had to, everyone has to be on guard. Be on the alert. And how devoted was the apostle to emphasizing and showing the people that they needed to be on the alert? He says in verse 31, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. The apostle Paul, night and day, For three years, day after day after day, all day and all night, whenever he was awake, he's admonishing each one with tears. That's how many false teachers are out there. That's how sneaky they are. That's how they will come trying to snatch the sheep away. That's how dangerous it is. The Apostle Paul said even to the Philippians in two 15, that they live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
a crooked and perverse generation. Philippians 2.15. Jude 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They're creepy, crawly creatures that come into the room unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's why Philippians 3, 2, we must note who they are. He calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. He's not using dogs in the sense of a cute little puppy dog or a lap dog. He's not using dog like that. He's using dog in the sense of a stray dog or a wild dog, an untamed dog or untamable dog. That's the sense in which he's using the word dog. The false teachers are filthy creatures. Beware of the evil workers. Oh yes, they're working. They are using the name of Christ. They are in the ministry. They are pastors of churches. They know the Bible. But he calls them evil workers. They are evil. They may preach the true Christ, but they are actually evil workers. In Philippians 1, he mentioned them preaching the true Christ, but with false motives. Philippians 1, 15 to 17. Philippians 1, or 15 to 18. 1, 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. The apostle is not rejoicing in a false Christ being preached. He's rejoicing in the fact that the true Christ is preached, but the problem is with false motives, evil motives, selfish ambition. Matthew 23, 1-3. Matthew 23, 1-3. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. What they teach is true. It's just what they do is not true. They don't live according to what they teach. Their teaching is true teaching, but their living is evil. They are evil workers. Then he calls them false circumcision. False circumcision, and then says we, in verse 3, Philippians 3, 3, we are the true circumcision. Well, what's the difference between false circumcision and true circumcision? The true circumcision, worship in the Spirit of God. That must mean the false don't have the Spirit of God and cannot worship in the Spirit of God. Verse 3, the false circumcision 
glory, uh, do not glory in Christ Jesus. The true circumcision glories in Christ Jesus. They are in the ministry not for their glory, but for the glory of Christ. They're not in it for fame, fortune, and fun. They are in it because of faith in Christ. Not for themselves, but for the glory of Christ. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.5 We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.5 That's the distinction. And then he'll further say, no confidence in the flesh. A parallel to false and true circumcision. What's he mean? Of course, the Jews, the males among the Jews, were supposed to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. And they took pride in that. They were supposed to do it, but they didn't understand its true meaning. They didn't understand the sign that it symbolized. So, Romans 2. Romans 2, 25 to 29. Romans 2.25 explains the difference between true circumcision and false circumcision. One might have the physical circumcision, but not have the spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. 2.25. For indeed, 2.25 of the book of Romans. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor, Of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. It needs to be circumcision of the heart, by the Holy Spirit, and our praise comes from God, not men. We don't glory in the physical, but in the spiritual. That's the true Jew. That's the true Hebrew. But the men of the flesh, men of the world, the men of Satan, the evil workers, he says what they do. In verses 3 and 4, Philippians 3, 3 and 4, we have a phrase that occurs three times again. Three times, verses three and four. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. Verse four, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. There's a distinction, a clear distinction. Confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The the two are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. It's either the flesh or it is the spirit. It cannot be both. It's one or the other. Romans 
8. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God in the flesh, and it produces death. So no one should ever give any leeway to the flesh. Constantly reject the sins of the flesh. And how does it manifest itself? He says, if he were, Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Philippians 3, 5, and 6. If we were to put confidence in the flesh, how would that manifest itself? 3, 5. Circumcised the eighth day. And he could boast, I've been circumcised, you Gentiles have not been circumcised. Or you Jews living in Gentilic lands, you have not been. I'm purer than you are. Verse 5. The nation of Israel, of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has the noble name Israel based on the patriarch Jacob, who was also called Israel. God set Israel apart and gave them commandments, the law of Moses. God set them apart. He adopted them as their, his son out of Egypt. He established his covenants with them. This is Romans 9, 1 to 5. The nation of Israel was blessed in these various ways. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the prominent tribes, even, if, even though it was one of the smallest ones. Why? Because they shared the territory of Jerusalem with the tribe of Judah. They had the first king of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin did. And, and so because of its proximity to Judah and the capital city and even ownership of some of the territory of Jerusalem, it had prominence. And the first king comes from them, that tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a Hebraism, that is a Hebrew idiom to say like Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, the best song, or the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And here, when he says a Hebrew of Hebrews, he means I am pure blood. I'm not half and half, or I'm not one-tenth, or I'm not one-third, I'm not anything like that. I'm pure blood, a Hebrew, from the Hebrew nation. As to the law of Pharisee, a Pharisee, meaning the Pharisees were meticulous students of the law. They understood or studied the law in detail. Now, they had that knowledge. They had that devotion. They had that enthusiasm for the words of God. The problem was they added their own laws that contradicted the words of God. And whatever was in the word of God, they allowed their knowledge to be subverted by their traditions and false doctrines. 
though their doctrine on the whole was better than the Sadducees. We might say, the Pharisees were like today's laymen who believe some basic things about the Bible. The Sadducees are like today's scholars in academia who deny the supernatural. The Sadducees are more like the academics who deny miracles and deny certain parts of the Bible, certain essential doctrines of the Bible, like the Trinity, justification by faith, ones that everybody will say, oh yes, that's an essential doctrine. But the Pharisees didn't do that. They would say, no, the Bible is the word of God. The miracles are true. There is a heaven, there is a hell. We do have a body and a soul. They would say things like that. So his doctrine, the theology, was better, relatively speaking, than the Sadducees. Then he says, six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Yes, he persecuted the church. He voted for people to be put to death. He encouraged the death penalty against the followers of Christ. He did this, evident in the book of Acts, from chapter 8 and 9, especially the introduction to this kind of persecution. He participated. He was happy to watch the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death at the end of chapter 7 of Acts. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. By blameless, he doesn't mean he was sinless. By blameless, he means there, he was above reproach in keeping the law. He was not flagrantly uh, money-hungry. He was not flagrantly uh, sexually immoral. He did not worship images. He didn't do things like that. So on the surface, you could say he's above reproach. He's, he's got no notorious sins for which we could accuse him. He was not that way. The father of Zacharias was also like this. Zacharias, who received word from the angel, the angel Gabriel, it says this in Luke 1, Luke 1, 6. Luke 1, 6. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, Zacharias and Elizabeth. It says they were righteous in the sight of God, not just in the sight of men, in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That doesn't mean Zacharias and Elizabeth were perfect people. But in their case, actually, they were believers. In Paul's case, he was an unbeliever. But the similarity is they didn't have notorious sins for people to easily accuse them. But did he put confidence in any of this? This is his background. This is his pedigree. Did he put any confidence in all of this? No. In fact, upon his conversion, verses 7 and 8 take place. 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The things of the world became meaningless to him and even rubbish to him. 
rubbish or refuse or dung. That's what the things of the world became to him. But Christ became everything to him. He understood what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He understood that his past life, pre-conversion life, was a life of sin and that he had to reject all of his sins, not just one or two, not just the most notable ones, not just the most noticeable ones, but all of them. He understood that because he says everything he aspired to accomplish, he now counts rubbish. He wants nothing to do with all of the past. He only wants to know Christ and gain Christ. To know him and gain him. Because this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. Now, where is he looking? He's looking to Christ. He's looking forward. This we find in verses 9 to 16, especially verses 12 to 16. But 9 to 16, he's looking to Christ and he's looking ahead. He's pressing on. How so? Verse 9, and may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Righteousness first reckoned to him by justification from Christ to him. And then righteousness for sanctification, holiness, godliness, from Christ to him. Romans 10. Romans 10, 1 to 4. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He quit establishing his own righteousness that he might, by faith, have the righteousness of Christ. He understood that upon his conversion, that that's what he needed. He needed the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. Not only do we have righteousness reckoned, but notice verse, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. How will he know Christ? How will he experience the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, conform to his death, attaining to the resurrection from the dead? The resurrection from the dead is the resurrection of glory, the immortal resurrection. Though the righteous and the wicked will be raised from the dead, Acts 24, 15, this resurrection, he means the glorious resurrection. The resurrection he's speaking about in 321, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This power, the power of resurrection that converts is also the power of resurrection on the day of resurrection to raise us up from the dead. But meantime, we have fellowship with his sufferings and conformity to his death. That's our sanctification, which he's going to speak about more in 12 to 16. Our sanctification between our conversion and our coffin, between conversion and coffin, between our rebirth and the day we die physically, this period is the period in which we now live and what is required. He says, fellowship of his sufferings, conformity to his death. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. There are two graces given, two gifts of God, two things granted, two things given in Philippians 1.29, to believe in Christ and to suffer for Christ. Those are gifts. Suffering should not be seen as a curse It should be seen for us, we who are in Christ, as a gift. And it is necessary to receive the future glory. 8.17, Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. If, if we suffer in order to be glorified with him. Suffering first, glorification second. Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is a puzzling statement for many. What in the world does he mean that the afflictions of Christ are lacking? He's not talking about the head. 
the head has already suffered and died. He's talking about the body of Christ, the church, verse 24. The body. We are the rest of the body. We are his eyes and ears, his hands. And we must suffer just as our head suffered. That's what he means by lacking. There is a full amount, a comprehensive amount, a preordained amount of suffering for the church, the rest of the body of Christ, that must take place for the whole body to suffer together. The head's already suffered. It's now time for the body of Christ to suffer, the church. He glories in this. He rejoices in this. He understands that it is appointed by God, by his sovereignty. This is the way it has to be. If we have glory now, we'll have suffering later. Like the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 to 31. But if we suffer now, we'll have glory later. Verses 12 to 16. The doctrine of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. We have here in verses 12 to 16. Emphasized. Not, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. He has not already obtained the goal, the final prize. He has not attained to the resurrection from the dead. Nothing like that has happened. Perfection, sinlessness has not yet happened. Not even in the Apostle Paul. He says in the first person singular, I, I, I. It has not happened to me yet. I have not already obtained it. I have not already become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He presses on to lay hold of the eternal life. He means the final goal, the final experience of eternal life. He uses a similar phrase in 1 Timothy 6.12 and 6.19. 1 Timothy 6.12 and 6.19 to lay hold of this eternal life. He hasn't experienced it to the full, but he presses on. These verbs, to press on, to lay hold of, are not casual verbs. They're not verbs of leisure and relaxation. They are verbs of hard work. They are words of effort of exercise, like he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. He works hard, like 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, like the good soldier of Christ Jesus, like the tireless Athlete, exercising self-control in all things. Like the farmer, the hard-working farmer. This is the way he is, pursuing the Christian life. Not with ease, not casually, but with much effort. 
much diligence. Christ Jesus laid hold of me that way, so I should cling on to him that way. He saved me that way, I should hold on to him, not lose my grasp of him. 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He rejects the past. He forgets the past, which is what he said in the previous verses from verses 1 to 11, where, when he said that he counts all things to be lost in, for the sake of Christ. Everything is rubbish for the sake of Christ. Remember, Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. 17.32 of Luke. Remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do in Genesis 19? She looked back. She longed for the past life, the previous life in Sodom. Luke 9.61 to 62. Luke 9.61. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We cannot look back to our former sins. We may look back to our former sins in relation to the grace of God, in what God has done to change us. But we cannot look back to our former sins as enticements, as traps, as allurements. No, we have to reject them and say, I'm not going back to that again. I'm pressing on for the prize or the the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 15 and 16. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. By perfect, Either he means the mature or he's using it ironically for those who think that things are just fine. But most likely he means those who are mature. A parallel is 1 Corinthians 2.6 as for the mature or to the mature. 1 Corinthians 2.6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So to the mature who have the right attitude, he says, have this attitude, maintain this attitude. But then those who don't have this attitude, 
Attitude of what? Progressive sanctification. Continual rejection of our former sins. If we don't have this attitude, he says, if we have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. If we are of the elect, God will wake us up. He'll remind us. He'll prick us, our conscience, to have the right attitude. God will, re- will reveal that also to you so that we repent. Second Timothy 2.7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The reminders need to be repeated so that whenever we are distracted, confused, anxious, we have the right attitude for God to reveal it to us so that we can repent. He says also in 16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. It is of no value to regress. We must progress. Never regress. Never go backward. Always go forward. And then when we do go forward, at least maintain the same standard. Don't go back three steps and forward one step. Back three steps, forward one step, because eventually it all adds up and you've gone backward more than forward. Correct? That shouldn't happen. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 8 to 11. 2 Peter 1, 8 to 11. He explains in the previous paragraph some virtues that should be true of us. Diligence, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... There's the progress. And increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. We must maintain the same standard and progress. Our final paragraph in Philippians 3 is 17 to 21. 17, 317. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The Apostle Paul humbly says, follow my pattern. Do as I have been teaching you to live. That requires conviction and confidence to say. Conviction of faith and confidence in the truth to say that. He says that as well in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 
Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. But he does not mean himself, meaning himself alone. He says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now it's in the plural. He means the other apostles. He means the other pastors, the other disciples. He's talking about on the local level, there must be, for the local church, examples to follow. 1 Timothy 4, 12. 1 Timothy 4, 12. We can read 12 to 16. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It's necessary to take pains. It's necessary to be absorbed in them. It's necessary to have progress evident to all, both for the pastor and the people. And this is a matter of salvation, he says. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, because doing so will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. A pastor cannot say he is sinless. The pastor must progress. The people cannot say they are sinless. They must progress. And it must be evident that this progress is taking place, both in the pulpit and in the pew. And to the contrary, the Bible is constantly telling us the difference between light and darkness, godliness and wickedness. Now we have an example of wickedness in verses 18 and 19. Philippians 3, 18. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. False teachers walk in the opposite way. They live in the opposite way. He often told them about it. He tells them now even weeping. Like he said in Acts 20, 28 to 31, for a period of three years, night and day, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. This book is a book of rejoicing, but a book of weeping. Because he says here, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping. Those who live an ungodly life, those who have false theology, they are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not just a little bit wrong. They are a lot wrong because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction, not eternal salvation, destruction. Their God is their appetite, yes. God's false gods are not merely images, statues that people worship. Gods can be money, reputation, false theology. All kinds of things can be a false god. But in this case, it's their appetite. Their insatiable appetite for what they want. Greed. um, Fame, fortune, and fun. All the sins, the typical sins, can be put in those three categories. That's usually what's happening. And here he says it is their appetite, it's in their appetite as a God is. It controls them. They are controlled by these gods. They glory in shameful things. When they should glory in righteousness, they glory in shameful things. Things unheard of that they commit, unheard of in day-to-day life, they do it. They set their minds on earthly things. Instead of setting their minds on heavenly things, earthly things. Colossians 3, 1 Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That actually is also echoed in Philippians. Philippians in our passage, because now the glory, verses 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. All all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is in control of everything. And since we are citizens of heaven, he will ensure that we receive our eternal inheritance, including a glorified body on the day of resurrection. It's better to be with Christ forever than with Satan in torment. Destruction. This is what's at stake. That's why the apostle took pains for this whole chapter to make a clear distinction between true teachers and false teachers. Evil workers who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They don't want true theology and they don't want true morality. They despise both, just like Jude says in Jude 4. They practice licentiousness and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the way we must understand. It it comes down basically to to those two things. Is Christ preached exclusively? Is it Christ alone? And how are they expecting the people to live? Those are the two. That's what Paul's preaching. Let's understand this with discernment.
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.